Hey guys, I have a podcast that I think you'll really enjoy. Proof, the investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here is releasing its highly anticipated second season where they investigate the murder of 18-year-old Renee Ramos. The first season, which if you haven't listened to yet, you totally should, saw the release of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend, Brian Bowling. And thanks to evidence unearthed by proof, on December 8th, 2022, both Daryl Lee Clark and Kane Joshua Story were finally freed after 25 years behind bars. With that same investigative drive, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, and this time, they are on the streets of Manteca, California, to find out who really killed Renee Ramos. In proof, murder at the warehouse, you hear how, on June 5th, 2000, Renee's body was found buried beneath a pile of debris inside a new Home Depot building. And how, despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, her boyfriend, 18-year-old Jake Silva, and 33-year-old Ty Lopez were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. In the 1970s and 80s, a monster hunted the Connecticut River Valley. Seven bodies found, one survivor, and no suspects. I'm Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. I was seven months pregnant and stabbed 27 times, and I survived. My story didn't end that frightful night. This attack on me physically and mentally lingered for years. I'm Amanda Bedard, and I'm Jane's life coach and co-host of Invisible Tears. Jane is ready to share her story, and not just about her attack, but her healing process afterwards. As a platform for truth and healing, we are on a mission to help others that suffer from PTSD and help bring awareness to mental health issues. To hear my story and others, you can find Invisible Tears wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Two more murders, 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Sometimes even a confession isn't enough to convict. On February 13th, 1999, a mistrial was declared in a complicated case that saw a confession, but not a conviction. So if you like your coffee hot, but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. In February of 1992, a woman in Knoxville, Tennessee, went to the local police and reported a rape. Telling investigators that she had been abducted from the city, taken into the county, raped, tied up, and then robbed, she bravely took police to the spot where her attack happened. As police stood there in the secluded part of the woods in East Knox County, they noticed that the area, a favorite location for sex workers to bring their johns, was littered with old mattresses and used condoms. And there, sitting at the dead end, was the car the woman claimed belonged to the man who abducted her. Looking inside, investigator Tom Presley said he saw the woman's stuff, and as they continued through the woods, 
she pointed to a man and identified him as her rapist. There in the woods was Thomas D. Husky, in the company of a nude woman sitting on her knees. Pointing a weapon at their suspect, Thomas was arrested and taken into custody. Unfortunately, this is where the case against him started to fall apart. You see, the woman who reported the attack, the victim, failed to mention to police that she was a sex worker and that she went to Cahaba Lane with this man willingly. Though this in no way took away from the fact that she was the victim of a rape, her omission became an issue, and in the end, she decided not to testify against her attacker. Which meant that Thomas D. Husky, having learned from his mistake, was set free and this time, he was going to make sure he left no witnesses behind. Eight months later, on October 20th, 1992, a hunter walking in that same wooded area stumbled upon the body of 32-year-old Patricia Rose Anderson. Calling the police, they searched the area, and over the next few days, three more bodies were uncovered. The following week turned up a fourth. Their names were Patricia Rose Anderson, Patricia Ann Johnson, Darlene Smith, and Susan East Stone. All were found naked, and all were strangled to death. When Tom Presley heard the news around the station, he called up the county and told them, I think I know who your killer is. A call that would have never been made had that woman not come forward and reported her rape. The following day, October 21st, Thomas was taken into custody for a second time and was later taken into court to answer for an outstanding warrant for solicitation. Pleading guilty, he signed the waiver as Kyle Husky. Unnoticed at the time, investigators started digging into his life and soon learned about the nickname Zoo Man. According to the Knoxville area sex workers he frequented, Thomas, who worked in the elephant barn, was known to pick up women near the zoo and rape them. A number of victims started coming forward, and a search of his parents' home in nearby Pigeon Forge turned up rope, porn, and jewelry investigators believed were trophies from his many victims. Unfortunately, this search warrant was issued by a city judicial commissioner, an individual that the appellate court later ruled had no authority to issue the warrant. After his arrest and as victims continued to come forward, Thomas gave police a total of four different statements. In three of them, Kyle Husky confessed to the murder, described meeting the women and what they wore in extreme detail, what they did once they got to the woods, and claimed that he raped three of the four victims, even describing how Patricia Anderson, pregnant at the time, begged him to let her go. The fourth statement, given by a South African alter ego named Philip Dax, said that Kyle was out to hurt the helpless Thomas. You see, Thomas claimed that he suffered from multiple personality disorder and that it was his alter ego named Kyle that actually committed the murders out of hatred and hope that it would ruin his life. The prosecution, not buying it, said he got the name from the road on which his family once lived, Kyle Avenue. But when asked about his plea, Thomas said not guilty, and his lawyer, Herb Monsieur, quickly added not guilty by reason of insanity. It would take six years for this case to finally go to trial, and in the meantime, Thomas D. Husky was convicted for the series of rapes and assaults that were uncovered during the early stages of the investigation. 
In that trial, there was no mention of his other personalities. With a death sentence on the line, Herb Moncier and his partner, Gregory Isaacs, did what they could to try and get his damning confession thrown out and proved to the courts that their client did indeed suffer from what was now being called disassociative identity disorder. Claiming Thomas's IQ was incredibly low and therefore he would not be able to successfully fake his other two personalities, especially that of a sophisticated Englishman, they tried to argue that the confession by Kyle was not actually an admission of guilt. Defense psychologist Diana McCoy took the stand and testified that Thomas Husky did have the condition and that it was brought on by a childhood of trauma and molestation. Claiming he was criminally insane at the time of each murder, she said that in total there were four alter egos she met over the course of the 27 meetings she had with Thomas Husky, Kyle, Jericho, Timmy, and Larry. His wife later affirmed for the courts that she noticed these alternate personalities over the course of their relationship. And another doctor, Dr. Robert Sadoff, a forensic psychiatrist, said he witnessed with his own eyes the shift in alter egos and noted the altered facial expressions and mannerisms, like the fact that he switched which hand he wrote in depending on who he was. Going further, another doctor, Dr. Jeffrey W. Erickson, took the stand and explained how Thomas, suffering from a brain disorder, was first examined back in 1977 when he was just 16 years old, after he broke into a home on the grounds of the Knoxville Zoo. There were also claims that, as a young man, Thomas was recruited by a sadomasochistic sex ring, which permanently scarred his psyche, that he suffered severe physical and sexual abuse at the hands of his teachers, and was allegedly gang-raped by a, quote, Sergeant Blackie, and several teenage boys. The alter egos were each formed as a means to help him cope with these traumatic experiences. Though all of this information seemed valid, the prosecution remained steadfast that Thomas Husky was faking his mental illness. Led by Randy Nichols, the prosecution team hired experts like Dr. Herbert Spiegel, an expert on hypnosis and famous for treating Shirley Mason, who took the stand and voiced his belief that Thomas did not display genuine disassociative identity disorder. Explaining how rare that diagnosis actually is, he suggested that Thomas was highly imaginative and created Kyle as a means to manipulate the court in his favor. The prosecution also stated that there was no one to corroborate the man's alleged child abuse, and an inmate revealed that he saw Thomas reading the book Sybil and stating that he was going to, quote, pretend to be crazy to avoid the death sentence. His own mother even said that she never saw any evidence of the alleged alter egos. The jury, understandably, struggled to suss out truth from fiction. According to the sources, five of the jurors believed that Thomas was a guilty man, while four said that he was not guilty by reason of insanity. With three completely at a loss, one would later admit to hearing about his previous rape convictions, though not admitted into court, and her opinion was changed. But in the end, the judge was forced to declare the whole thing a mistrial on February 13, 1999. Then, in 2002, a court determined that Thomas asked for a lawyer during his confession, and therefore, the entire admission was now ruled coerced and inadmissible. 
Between that and the flawed search warrant, there was no longer a case against Thomas D. Husky. Unable to use the rope and jewelry in any future future trials, there was hope that, if brought to the Supreme Court, the ruling would change under a good-faith exception, which basically meant that, when officers entered the home that day, they fully believed that they were executing a legally sound search, and therefore, should be allowed to enter the evidence into trial. But in October of 2005, 13 years after all of this began, District Attorney General Randy Nichols was forced to give up the case and all charges against Thomas D. Husky were dismissed. Which means that the only man accused of serial murder in Knox County went to prison as a convicted rapist who qualified for parole in 2012. As far as I can tell, Thomas still remains behind bars. Now a grandfather, he was last reported to be in a privately run medium security prison in Clifton, Tennessee, with a set release date of 2056, if not paroled beforehand. Which means that no one has ever been held accountable for the murders of Patricia Rose Anderson, Patricia Ann Johnson, Darlene Smith, and Susan East Stone. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on February 14th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.